Chapter Four of Laramie Holds the Range by Frank Spearman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Four, at the Eating House. Doubleday drove the two women down from the ranch. At the junction, there were, besides the railroad eating house, a few houses and a few stores, and almost as many saloons as at Sleepy Cat itself the place being, Bell said, a shipping point both for cattle and for miners. Kate was relieved to find her father's cottage on a hill across the railroad track quite livable-looking. It was, like all the other houses, one story and square, being divided into kitchen, dining-room, and two bedrooms. The interior, its shiny furniture covered with dust, was dreary enough, but Kate knew she could make the place presentable, and after the first few days in her new surroundings began to recover her high spirits. Her father had not yet said she was to stay, but she thought he liked her. Belle told her as much, and she set about making her woman's hand felt. Her father took his meals at the eating-house, and the cottage had been indifferently cared for by old Henry, the eating-house porter. Kate, as a housekeeper, was a marked improvement, one that even so absorbed a man as her father could not but notice. She naturally spent much time at the eating-house herself, because Belle, her sole acquaintance at the junction, was there. "'How are you going to like it here?' demanded Belle, scrutinizing Kate critically, after she had known her a few months. "'I love it,' was the prompt answer. Belle seemed dismayed. "'How about the alkali?' she asked, as if to convict Kate of deceit. Kate only nodded. "'It's all right.' "'And the sagebrush? I like it.' "'And the greasewood? Why not?' Belle had begun to like Kate's laugh. "'Not going to get lonesome out in this country?' Belle flung at her as a gloomy clincher. "'Lonesome?' At this idea Kate laughed outright. "'Do I look it?' she cried. "'Guess you like to horseback pretty well,' muttered Bell, casting about for a solution of so surprising an attitude, and unable to find any other fault with her protégé. "'I'd rather ride than eat,' declared Kate, youthfully exuberant. "'What about swimming?' inquired Bell, determined to fasten discontent on her. "'I hate swimming.' "'Well,' grumbled her companion, defeated at every point, "'Barb's got plenty of horses.' Kate did not like to hear her father called Barb, but Belle would not call him anything else. Back at the cottage, Doubleday had a small barn where Henry, an ex-cowboy, looked after Doubleday's driving horses. In the very first pledge from her father that she was to be tolerated in the strange household she had invaded in this faraway country, came to Kate when he sent down for her use two saddle ponies. The fleeting suspicion of loneliness that she would not confess even to herself all vanished when the ponies came. She could then ride to and from the ranch, and when Henry failed to appear, Kate took care of her pets herself. After her father told her they were really hers, she could hardly let Henry himself lay a hand on them. When the evenings grew tedious, she would go down for supper with Belle and sit with her in the small alcove off the office, where the two could see and hear without being seen. 
and Belle's stories had no end. The only feature of her situation that would not improve was her father's aloofness. He seemed to try at times to thaw out, but he persistently congealed again. One evening he got in late from the ranch, cold and wet, complaining of rheumatism. The driver went on with the team to Sleepy Cat, and Doubleday told Kate he would stay all night. She had a good fire in the grate and made her father a toddy. He sat with her before the fire late and talked for the first time about his affairs, which seemed mostly money troubles. Next morning he could hardly get out of bed, but he was set on going to the ranch, and Kate helped him to dress and got him a good breakfast with a cup of strong coffee. He softened enough to let her go up to the ranch with him. She had already coaxed from him the furniture for the spare room so she might spend the night there occasionally. Van Horn had promised to teach her sometime how to use a rifle and to take her out after antelope, and Kate was keen for going. The next day her father brought her the rifle from Sleepy Cat. They drove out in the evening, but the minute they reached the ranch house, Kate perceived something was up. Van Horn greeted her with a good deal of freedom, Kate thought, but apologized for hurrying away after she had shown him her new rifle, with the hint that they had bigger game in sight just then, and after a long walk with her father and much preparation he and Stone rode off, two of the men from the bunkhouse with them. Her father plainly let Kate see that he himself had no intention of entertaining her. He was outside most of the time, and Kelly, the cook, being the only man to talk to, Kate, in self-defense, went to bed. During the night she was awakened by voices. Van Horn and Stone were back, and they were talking to her father in the living room. Kate thought at first some accident had happened. Van Horn, eager, pleased, and rapid in utterance, did much of the talking, Stone breaking in now and again with a few words in harsh nasal tones, harsher tonight than usual. Her father seemed only to ask a question once in a while. Kate tried not to eavesdrop, but she could not occasionally help hearing words about wire, which Van Horn was sure somebody would never find. The men had apparently been somewhere and done something. The clink of glasses indicated drinking, and there was much cursing of something or somebody. Then the talk got loud, and her father hushed it up, and the party went to bed. There seemed something furtive and secret about the incident that Kate could not fathom. Why should honest men get together in the dead of night to exalt and curse and drink? She composed herself to sleep again. These were simply things she did not understand. She thought she did not want to understand them, but even after she got back to the junction, she wondered why her father should be mixed up in them. Meantime, she spent a week of delight at the ranch, mostly on horseback, learning the western horse and western riding. After her outing, Doubleday took Kate down to the junction. He went on to Sleepy Cat, but that night he came back ill. In the morning he was not able to get up. Kate telephoned, as he directed, to Sleepy Cat for Dr. Carpy. The doctor, when he came, looked Kate over with interest. He was a smooth-faced, powerfully built man, 
rough-looking and rough in speech, but he knew his business. It was an acute attack of rheumatism, he said, and he told Kate to keep her father in bed and to keep him quiet and nurse him. He's so active, said Kate regretfully. He seems to be on the go all the time. Damn him, explained Carpy with blunt emphasis. He's nervous all the time. That's what's the matter. He's got too many irons in the fire. Kate swallowed her astonishment at so extraordinary a medical outburst. She reminded herself she was really out west. Bell, when Kate saw her the following morning at the eating house, said much the same thing, and added in her coldly philosophic way, I reckon the banks have got him. And say, Kate, here's a telegram just come for your father. Kate took the dispatch up to the cottage. It was from Van Horn at Medicine Bend, and it so upset her father that she was sorry she had had to deliver it. After an interval, unpleasant both for the disabled man and his nurse, Kate ventured to ask whether there was not something she could do. There was not. Litigation against him, long dormant, he explained between twinges, had been revived, papers issued, and a United States deputy marshal was on the way to serve him. I thought, he growled, the thing was dead, but nothing against me ever dies. If it gone past today, it would have been outlawed. You'll have to send some telegrams for me. He gave her the substance of them and of a letter he wanted written, all of which she carefully took down. Then, putting on her hat, she hastened to the eating house to send the telegrams. It was well past noon. At the lunch counter desk, Kate copied the messages on telegraph blanks, took them up to the operator and came downstairs to write the letter for her father. While she was doing this, the two o'clock Medicine Bend train pulled in. It was the big through train of the day, the train that Bell had said must bring the dreaded summon server from Medicine Bend, if he came that day at all. But Kate, absorbed in her letter writing, had forgotten all about this unpleasantness when something she was never able to say just what, recalled her to herself. She became all at once conscious that she was writing a letter, and at the same time conscious that she was no longer alone in the little room. End of chapter 4